First Kings chapter 19, and we'll read from verse, uh, well, can read from the beginning down as far as verse 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. We live in a society that's in many, many ways success-driven. Success is something that's something that you find so frequently pro- promoted and spoken about. You find books on success, counseling courses on success, all kinds of things to do with success, particularly success in the likes of business enterprises and that sort of, um, that sort of uh, career. And the thing is, when you're living in a society that's so much given to think about success, so much uh, given to a drive towards success, especially in worldly terms or financial terms, you'll find that the fear of failure hits many people hard and actual failure itself even harder. Failure is not a word that any of us likes. Failure is something we understandably shy away from and wouldn't want to experience in ourselves, by ourselves. Nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to be known as a failure. And even the fear of failure is something that we go back to one of our studies in this series that we've begun just a few weeks ago through many tribulations, looking at the many different kinds of tribulations and difficulties that we meet with in the Christian life though they are common to human life indeed as well, but our concern is to look at how the Bible presents them to us in a way that we can, by faith and by trusting in God, meet with them, overcome them, use them in our daily experience. And uh, living with failure, living with a fear of failure, is itself one of the uh, bad stresses that we looked at in one of our previous studies. Sense of failure is very often deflating for us. Uh, It's something that really hits us in such a way psychologically, mentally, spiritually, even physically, where it leads very often directly to discouragement or even to depression. And there are so many lives, even among God's people, that really experience failure or live with a sense of failure. And indeed, we'll have to see tonight that Failure has to be defined the way God defines it because some people live with what they regard as a sense of failure where actually it's not failure at all in the highest sense, in the ultimate sense. It's something that perhaps God is using towards their further understanding of his ways, of dependence upon him, and so on. But living with a sense of failure and the fear of failure very often leads to being terribly discouraged and really slackening or giving up in the things that we're involved with even on a spiritual level, even in terms of the gospel or of the church or of serving the Lord in the world. And it's at this stage that we're thankful to have a Bible. 
We're thankful to have God's word before us because that's really where we find the proper definition of failure and success. Where we find God himself telling us, this is actually how I see success. This is how I see failure. And when you come to see success in the way that God defines success, then you're in a better position to appreciate what failure is and what it is not. We're not left to our own understanding. We're not left to the way the world thinks, sees things or defines things. God is actually giving us in his word records of people's lives that have experienced failure and not only how they dealt with it, but more importantly, how God used it in their experience. And indeed, you'll find that tonight in this case of Elijah. When you come to the Bible and you come to discover its uh, teaching on success and failure, all the issues that are related to it that we need to know of, it comes across as something surprising perhaps to discover that the likes of Elijah experienced failure that he faced failure, that he had a sense of failure and that it led him into this terrible crisis in his life that we find described in these verses. When you go through the Bible, you find other people that you might think of were so strong in mind, so strong in faith, they couldn't possibly have failed, couldn't possibly have feared failure, couldn't possibly have done anything like that. But then you go to Moses and you go to David and you go to Peter, you go to others in the Bible, and you discover the same thing with them. The only human being who never experienced any sense of failure was the Lord himself. Because all of us, to some extent, fail or fear failure or experience that sense of failure from time to time. And when we discover that some of the best people who ever lived experienced that sense of failure or lived with failure, then you begin to understand, well, if they had this in their lives, then I shouldn't be surprised that I have it in my life either. And we see how God uses failure in his program. And so we're going to look tonight at Elijah, and we'll spend a couple of weeks at least looking at Elijah and some of the issues that we find here that fit into this series of studies on uh, going through many tribulations on the way into the kingdom of God, into eternal life finally in heaven. This is part of the journey. This is very much part of the experience of God's people in every generation. So what is there here with Elijah that has led to this? He went a day's journey into the wilderness. This is him running for his life from Jezebel, something you would um, perhaps not have associated with him, uh, something you wouldn't expect him to do. This, this strong man, this man that has in the previous chapter just did so many things, uh, and was so confident in his God and sure that the Lord would actually show himself through what he was doing, as indeed he did. What's leaving him now? Running from Jezebel, running from this queen, this wicked queen, wicked though she is. What's leaving him running from her? What's leaving him in this situation? He's gone a day's journey in the world, into the wilderness on his own. And he throws himself under a broom tree and he asks the Lord to take away his life. He feels he's had enough. He doesn't want to go on. He feels useless. He has a sense of abject failure. And he's saying to the Lord, that's it, it's, it's, it's been with me long enough. I've done what I can do. I've done all I could. But don't make me go further. This is where it ends. This is where my service terminates. 
What was it that led Elijah to that crisis? What led him to that collapse? You might call it very rightly a collapse in his mind and in his spiritual outlook in terms of how he now is compared to what he was before. What led to this? Well, there are two things that are outstanding, I think, in the chapter, in these verses especially, that really jump out and come across to us as you read again and again. It's almost a good idea when you're reading a passage of God's Word. It's good sometimes to read through a whole book, but it's also good to read a shorter passage, and even this one, verses 1 to 8, for example, just read them and read them again and go back and read them again. Because the more you read them like that repetitively, the more you'll then discover, well, I didn't notice that the first time, and I can see something there now that must have led to this crisis in Elijah's life. The two things that are very obvious, I think, from this passage, first of all, exhaustion, and secondly, frustration. These two, very often, if not always, lead to some sort of crisis in our lives where they exist, where they're allowed to develop, and where we don't attend to them the way that we should. He is exhausted. This is very obvious from what you see there. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree. He said this to the Lord. Then he lay down and slept under this broom tree. And it's almost instant, just like that. He's out like a light, you might say. This man needs his rest. This man needs his mind to... To, to, to rest. This man needs his soul to be refreshed. He needs his body to rest. And it shows the condition that he was in when you see how quickly there he rested. He fell asleep and needed that rest. Rest is so important that the Bible speaks of it many, many times. We all need times of rest mentally physically spiritually refreshment resting is hugely important so important is it that God actually set a pattern for us himself because in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3 you'll find the first reference there to resting and it is God who is resting I'm not saying it's exactly the same resting as we have, but God is setting a pattern for us there. After he had finished the work of creation and saw that it was all very good, God rested from his work of creation that he had made. And he established that particular day as a day of rest. That's the root of our Sabbath principle. Sabbath meaning rest in Hebrew. That's where our Sabbath principle, or Lord's Day principle as it now is, in the New Testament comes from. That's why it's so important to God and so important to us. He has actually given us in Scripture to see right from the outset an emphasis on rest. He's really just flagging it up for us there right at the beginning of the Bible. Rest is something that you need. Proper rest. Adequate rest. A huge difference between that and idleness or laziness or slothfulness. The Bible condemns that, but it always promotes and uh, brings rest to us as an essential. And you'll find, going through the Bible, let me just pick up a couple of places where rest is mentioned in different ways. And when God spoke to Israel through Moses in Exodus chapter 23, this is what he said in verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. 
But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. See what God is saying there. Even the land had to be given rest. It fitted into the whole cycle of rest. Every seventh year the land was to lie fallow to give it rest. And that was to the advantage of the poor. So that they would be looked after. So that they would actually have resources that this fallowness provided for them. Just like the beasts of the field as well. And then it carries on, as we read there, into the seventh day, into this one-day-a-week cycle of rest. And that's what makes the Christian view of the Lord's Day so different to the secular or the worldly view of the Lord's Day. Because for the Christian, rest is important to enable them further to work in the service of the Lord. The world has reversed that. It's put that upside down. Because the idea you find currently and uh, down through history in the world really is we work all this time, we work as much as we can so that we can get a good holiday. In other words, work is directed towards holiday time. Whereas in the Bible, holiday time, rest is directed towards work, towards enabling you further to serve the Lord, to work for the Lord. And then of course you find Jesus himself, you remember, the likes of Mark chapter 6, verse 31 there, where uh, the crowds were just milling around, following him and the disciples, the apostles. And so he spoke to them, uh, the apostles, and said, Come and rest for a while. Come into a deserted place, a place where there aren't the crowds, and rest for a while. He knew the benefits of rest. He often needed rest himself, though sometimes, very often, he couldn't find even a place to rest, given the demands that were made upon him. But rest is hugely important. And of course, it's part of our salvation, isn't it? What is it to be saved? It's to know peace with God. It's to know rest. It's to know our souls being at rest. Why does the Bible speak about entering into our rest to the people of God? Hebrews uses the pattern of the Lord's Day to actually remind us that the Lord's Day is actually a foretaste of the rest of heaven, of the peace that heaven will have for God's people. So all the way through there, both in terms of our physical need, our mental need, our spiritual need, our salvation, this matter of rest is so crucial in God's definition of human life, what human life needs, why rest is important. We need regular rest. And obviously, Elijah wasn't able to take rest, or if he was, he hadn't been taking the rest because he's exhausted. He's come here, he's thrown himself under the broom tree. You can just see what it's like from the words that are used there. He's disconsolate, he's discouraged, he's fatigued, he's exhausted. What he needs above all at that time is just time to sleep, time to rest. That's if, in fact, what happens, what he does. So you need your regular rest. I need my regular rest. We need that same pattern in our lives. If you go on and just listen to the world and its busyness 
And if you go on just seven days a week, 24 hours a day, doing the same thing, following the same pattern of work, you're going to be frazzled, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be in need of rest more than ever before. Why is the world so filled with such stress? Why is the stress is something we looked at previously? Why is the world filled with bad stress? Why are there so many things in people's lives that cause breakdown, that cause uh, lives to be shattered, lives not to be as they should be, because of a lack of rest, because the demands of the world uh, are so constant, so vehement, just ongoing. You've got to do this, you've got to finish this, you've got to meet this deadline, you've got to earn that much for the company, you've got to do this within a certain time. Here are the penalties if you don't meet the deadlines, if you don't actually do what is in your contract to do. It's all to do with just pushing you, pushing you all the time. We need a rest. And you know, that's what's important. We try as much as we can to, to promote the Lord's Day to those who really don't want to listen. We want to secularize it further and just, uh, well, they'll say, yes, of course, for you Christians, it's fine. You can go to church, but don't ask us to do that. But just give us the facilities. Open the sports center. Let's have the golf club open. Let's have all of these things available to us. It's so important that we keep emphasizing rest is more than just stopping your normal work. Rest is the rest of worship, the rest of communion with God. The rest that is a day set apart particularly to attend to those spiritual things. That's what the Bible calls rest. As well as physical and mental rest. And that's why we, can, we, we still resist um, these claims, these attempts to further erode what we know of as the keeping of the Lord's day. Because it is so important that people rest. It's good for their minds especially good for their souls. That's what we try to get through. It's a holistic, if you like, approach to human life. Don't leave out, we're telling them, the spiritual side of it, the worship side of it. That's really at the very heart of what rest means. So he was exhausted. He needed rest, and that's what he did. And we need a regular rest. One of the most famous preachers ever in the church in our nation uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, may be surprising to some people but he, he suffered from depression it seems to have been something that set in after uh, a really terrible incident uh, remember the, his uh, church got too small for the numbers that wanted to hear him uh, so they hired a, a large hall a music hall type of place uh, that would sit uh, that would accommodate 10,000 people and just one day um, I think it was around 1856 or so and uh, this voice was heard shouting fire, fire, fire the place is collapsing the balconies are giving way and there was a massive stampede and people trampled over each other eight people were killed many others injured and Spurgeon really in a sense never got over that in some ways he blamed himself and uh, from that time onwards, he was prone to being down in his mind, or depression, you would call it. And every winter time, he spent a whole month every year in Menton, in the south of France, on the French Riviera. That was for his health's sake, for his mind's sake, so that he could rest, so that he could have proper rest. I'm sure there were people in Spurgeon's day that, just as there was over that 
disaster if you like there was a lot of press that was negative that lambasted Spurgeon for attracting so many people into such a, into such a situation and ridiculed the gospel that he was preaching it took advantage of this to try and further erode the influence of the gospel and I'm sure there would have been people that said well why does he need a month every year in the south of France and the French Riviera is that not just for celebrities is that not just people for people who have lots of money and Spurgeon would say if you want me to crack up altogether then get me to stay at home get me to stop taking my rest I need this we all need that whether it's a month or a week whatever but we need friends a rest and I'm just going to mention something else in passing there which is important in relation to that and that is the way that the Bible speaks about the church or teaches us about the church as a spiritual body. There are many ways in which that's important, but it's important in relation to this as well because if we regard the church as a body, for example in Romans chapter 12, you find the Apostle Paul there saying um, regarding the gifts that the body, as in one body, we have many members, that's our physical body. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And he speaks about gifts and uh, different uh, activities, different callings, prophesying, teaching, exhorting, and so on. And it's important to regard the church as a body where each person should have their own role and have something to contribute that others perhaps aren't uh, really able to do or cut out for. But one of the things for which that's important is that people don't get overworked you know what's said very often it's the same small group of people that end up doing most of the work sadly that's true in many contexts that's why when we appeal at times as we've done in the intimations today for other helpers even for the uh, what you might call the mundane task of kitchen duties with regard to parent and toddler that's important so that others aren't overworked by trying to do things that others could do and leaving them free to do other things. Now, there are things like that throughout all our activities in the church or in the congregation. And the fact that we should see, uh, the, the beauty about seeing the biblical pattern of the church as a body is that we should really ideally make sure that others aren't overstressed or overworked and therefore we contribute our own part to the working of the whole body. That's important, of course. We can actually be at fault ourselves for, for overwork. Some of us are not very good at delegating, including myself, and uh, passing things on to others who could do things for us. Sometimes we have the wrong priorities altogether. Sometimes we try and do things even within the church that really others should be doing for us, and we don't need to be doing ourselves. And of course, there's always the pressure of people's expectations what people would demand of us, what others would say we should be doing, the level to which others would require us to be working. You try and please everybody, you're going to crash. You meet up with human demands, the pressure of people's expectations. C.S. Lewis, one of his writings said, the ultimate failure in human life is to be successful in the things that don't really matter. 
The ultimate failure in human life is to be successful in the things that don't really matter. Or you could uh, add to that what we've been saying, in the things that others should be doing instead of ourselves. That's why the church as a body is so important to see the church as a body. So he's exhausted. Let's look after each other. Let's give space to each other to take our rest. Let's be persuaded that rest is absolutely vital in our human life, in our church life, in our congregational life. The second thing you have, along with exhaustion, is frustration. And you can see that, in fact, from the way that he twice answered the Lord and the Lord's question when the Lord said, What are you doing here, Elijah? A very telling question, a very probing question. This is not where the Lord would want Elijah to be. This is not what he had commissioned him to do to sit and mope under a broom tree in the wilderness and ask that his service would come to an end. And you can see the way he actually then said, well, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Twice he said the same thing. You can see his sense of frustration in that. And frustration is very much part of the fabric of our human experience as well. Because what Elijah is really saying and what comes across in the chapter is Elijah has not seen any change despite the great things that happened in the previous chapter. He's exhausted from his exertions in the previous chapter and in his life and other things leading up to that. And you might expect that after all that had been said on Mount Carmel, the people in verse 39, when they saw the fire falling from heaven, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Didn't make any difference to them actually. For most of them as a people, life just went all as it was in idolatry. And there was no change in the palace, no change in Jezebel, no change in Ahab. So she sent a messenger to Elijah and said, by this time tomorrow, I want you dead. There's a contract out on you. This is, this is what's waiting for you. So he then was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life. Now, if he hadn't been exhausted the way he was, if he hadn't been filled with a sense of frustration, he wouldn't have actually done anything like this. He wouldn't have turned away from Jezebel. He probably would have stood up to that and asked for the Lord to preserve his life, and so on. But he did, and he escaped. He just went away. And this is what he's now expressing, the sense of frustration. He says, now take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You see what he's saying? Nothing's changed, so I'm no better than my father's. I haven't achieved anything at all in the life I've lived, in the service that I've given, Lord. So it's time that this came to an end. Take away my life. It's not worth going on. And that's something that comes by way of temptation to ourselves as well in life, especially in your Christian life. There are times when things haven't gone as you might have expected. Times when you, perhaps even under the devil's prompting, say, well, what's the point of going on? What's the point of serving the Lord? It's just filled my life with difficulties and crises. 
It has just given me to experience things that really hurt me. And I just find the string of these things happening in my life. And I see the life of others, just like a psalmist is saying there in one of the psalms in Psalm 73. These people that are ungodly, their life is not stressed like mine is. They're going on from day to day and they're not caught up and they're not, uh, they're, they're not stressed out by things the way I am. That's what his reasoning was. And it would be better, he says, had I not just, if I just washed my hands of the whole thing. That's the kind of thought that was coming into his mind, just like Elijah is here. That's why he says, it's enough. I've had enough. There's no point to going on. And I'm sure, to some extent, you and I have been there. When life gets really tough. And when things in the church of God aren't what they ought to be or we expect them to be. Perseverance in Christian service is sometimes a struggle. To go on from day to day serving the Lord, doing the same things, sometimes can be just not just tiring and demanding, but a real struggle. Even if it's very exciting at first. Very often this sort of thing kicks in somewhere down the road in our Christian experience. And especially if there are a series of things that have really caused us uh, distress or pain or anxiety or loss. And the devil will then come and place his hooks into us and say, well, what's the point of going on? You're a Christian. Why are you serving this God? Look what's happening in your life. Look at the difficulties you've got compared to what you had before you became a Christian. Is it really worth going on? bit like um, you know what it's like I'm sure most of you have had children or now have grandchildren like myself but when the children were young we were going out on holiday very often you'd have uh, an explanation of where you were going on holiday perhaps you were journeying down south or wherever and the children you'd go over with them before you set out and they'd be all excited and you'd show them the things you were expecting to to, for them to see and to take part in and all the rest of it then you set out on the journey there they are in the car all your stuff's packed off you go and they're filled with excitement but uh, well 20 miles down the road they're saying is it far away yet? how long is it till we reach? and then they'll maybe fall asleep and another hour down the road and they'll say are we not there yet? you see they're losing their enthusiasm they're finding the going is so difficult compared to what they thought and it feels so long and sometimes if we're honest Christian life can feel like that too that's what it is for Elijah I'm no better than my fathers no point in going on when is this really going to end when is the pressure going to be lifted and we'll see in another study how God actually dealt with him how God's care for him so wonderful in these circumstances but God gives us doesn't he in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 9 to 10 you remember there how uh, the apostle Paul in finishing off his letter to the Galatians is uh, emphasizing the need to look after each other but also uh, he finishes by uh, or near the end of the chapter there um, when you come to verses 9 and 10 let us not grow weary of doing good or in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith that's of the Christian people of God 
in due season we shall reap if we don't give up if we don't give in perseverance patience keeping on it's a struggle at times Elijah's here just about ready to give in sometimes that's how it feels the frustration and especially when you're not seeing things the way you would perhaps be praying that you would see results for your prayers results for your labor not just in the ministry though it is very much part of that as well sometimes time goes by I remember a time many years ago when there were a series of communion times when there were no new professions of faith nothing much happening in the congregation and really it comes home then really powerfully to, to your mind well is it worth going on in this place is it not time for a change and is it not time to end this ministry here until the Lord actually then intervenes and shows well that's your mind that's your view that's how you see it that's not how I see it you'll stay until I tell you to go somewhere else and that's how it is with our Christian service as well here's God's word for the tired uh, for those who are downcast for those who are frustrated and if you're tonight frustrated that uh, things are not as you expected them to be in your Christian life don't think that that's out of place don't think that that's wrong for God to have led you into that path take lessons from Elijah and his exhaustion and frustration and his sense of failure the final thing I want to mention is that from this passage we can really um, see how God brings success from or through our failures the way to further success is very often through experiencing failure or a sense of failure or even the fear of failure you know, Elijah actually came to leave this world in a remarkable way. Here he is saying to the Lord, Lord, take away my life now. Let it end here and stop this service. And Elijah actually ended up not dying at all. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire without seeing death. How wrong he was at this point as he viewed his life to be a failure. That's very often what God will impress upon us. What we term failure is not necessarily so to God. What we term success is not necessarily so to God. And God uses our sense of failure, our fear of failure, and our actual failures towards further enrichment of our experience of walking with Him. You remember Peter? And Peter in... Uh, Luke chapter 5 I'm just going to finish with this Luke chapter 5 where uh, Jesus is using Peter's boat firstly to teach the crowds out of the boat as he got into the boat he didn't actually ask Peter for permission of course he just got in he requisitioned it as was his right as the Lord um, but as he got into the boat and taught the people he then said to Simon go out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. You see, Peter's sense of frustration and Peter's uh, near exhaustion, you might say as well, because he is talking about toiling. And he's really saying, Master, we're tired. We were tired. We worked the whole night previously for nothing. We've got nothing to show for it. And here you are asking us again to go out into the deep. I know that there are no fish there. We've been there all night. And the next words are the key 
in many ways to your Christian life and mine. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You know, in a sense, Peter is really saying there, well, my own human experience tells me there are no fish there. But Lord, you know best. And because it's your word, I'll go on doing this. I'll do as you say. And of course, they then caught such a large number of fish that their nets were at breaking point. And that's really, in many ways, the key to our sense of failure and to our fear of failure and to our actual failures. Nevertheless, Lord, at your word, because you say so, I'll go on trusting in you. I'll go on serving you. I'll go on praying. I'll go on worshipping with your people. Thomas Edison, a famous inventor in America, was at one time trying to find out a way of producing a dry battery, or now the batteries that you would put in your uh, whatever electronic things you've got that needs batteries. You have dry batteries, which up to then, of course, you needed some sort of liquids in order to um, do what a battery does. Thomas Edison was trying to actually establish a way to produce a dry battery. And hundreds of experiments failed in his attempts. And one of his employees came to him one day and he said, is it not time to actually give up on this project? We failed We've not produced this battery, so it's time just to give up. And Edison said, no, we haven't failed at all. I have been successful in discovering hundreds of ways that this wouldn't work. You see, he had used the failures as tools towards success eventually. And eventually he did produce this battery. Failure to him was just a step towards success ultimately. That's the Christian life for you. This failure that we're so familiar with, that the devil will press into our minds as a reason to give up. God is saying to us, that's a tool, and if you use it correctly and you keep on trusting in me, you will have success. You'll be successful in the end, and it'll be very real to you. Jesus himself said in John 16, verse 33, when we've looked at Peter with his sense of failure through exhaustion, the need for rest, his frustration, the challenge that we have to persevere in the Christian life, the success that God brings us to know sometimes through many failures. What Jesus said to the disciples, he's saying to us tonight, in this world, You will have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And when you are joined to that I, to that Christ, success is guaranteed. And don't let the devil or the world or anyone deprive you of the comfort of knowing that in Christ you are sure ultimately to succeed. Let's pray. Lord our God, we give thanks for the many times that we know of our being used by you successfully 
and of things that you have enabled us to achieve in the course of life. Help us also to be as ready to give you thanks for our failure, for the times that we know that we have failed, even for the sense of failure and the fear of failure. Help us, Lord, to be grateful that we can bring this to you, and that our lives can be further enriched through your taking off our failure and of your blessing us as we go on. Grant to strengthen us, we pray, against temptation, especially the temptation to give up, to step out of the way and to cease from serving you. Help us, we pray, at all times to realize how being joined to you is such a vital part of our perseverance. Receive our thanks, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's uh, conclude our service tonight singing in Psalm 43. Psalm 43, that's in the Sing Psalms version. The time has gone on, so I think we'll just sing the final uh, three verses because we have the fellowship. So Psalm 43 on page 54 and uh, at verse 3. O send your light forth and your, uh, your truth, let them direct me in your grace. And bring me to your holy hill, into your sacred dwelling place. Psalm 43, the verses 3 to 5. Oh, send your light for none. <coughs> get to the main door tonight please Lord our God we pray that you would now bless the fellowship about to take place and we ask that you bless the food provided for us there make us thankful for it we pray your blessing especially on Jackie as she comes to speak to us about the work of street pastors and remember that work itself we pray as we have information on it this evening and grant we pray that your grace and your mercy and your peace will follow us now and evermore Amen.